Kia ora and welcome to the next instalment of our COVID podcasts for rural clinicians. My name is Matilda Hamilton and these podcasts are brought to you by the University of Otago Rural Postgraduate Programme. These podcasts can be found on the Leaning on Fence Post blog and through usual podcast providers. At the time of recording this podcast, we have completed week two of our nationwide Level 4 lockdown. We are cautiously optimistic with the pattern of the current case numbers. As events unfold overseas, I think we are all feeling very thankful for strong, the strong leadership demonstrated at a national level and the decisive decision-making that has occurred. For this podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Louise Ventner. Lou is a FASM and a rural hospital physician who works in Queenstown at Lakes District Hospital. The Southern District Health Board has the highest number of cases as compared to all other district health boards at a total of 195 positive cases and is the home of two significant clusters. Lou and her team have been extremely busy planning and preparing while working closely with other rural hospitals in their region. The purpose of this podcast is to explore her experience to date and consider some of the unique challenges that exist for rural hospitals. This is also an opportunity for Lou to share some of what she and her team have put into place and learnt so that you may share in that uh, for your workplace and the planning um, that you're putting in place. So thanks, thanks for being with us, Lou, and thanks for taking time to do this. Um, just for the record, Lou is currently on um, doing night shifts, so particular sacrifice to do a, um, make a podcast today. So firstly, Lou, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and also describe what services exist at Lakes District Hospital. Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks, Matilda. Um, thanks for having me on this podcast. I've been in Queenstown Hospital since 2009, so that's coming up nearly 11 years. I'm originally from South Africa, and I graduate. I did my um, medical degree in South Africa, worked there for a couple of years before coming out here in 2002, and, and I've done all my postgrad training here in New Zealand. Uh, as you mentioned before, I'm a, I'm a rural hospital fellow, and uh, last year I got my face in um, so it's been an interesting ride, um, but a great one. Um, so Lakes Hospital is a really small rural hospital. It's, um, it's a 10-bedded hospital that's had um, quite unique challenges in, its, in, in the way that it's designed in, in trying to plan for COVID. Um, last year, we had a revamp of the emergency department, and we got a, a new ED with seven beds and two recesses. Uh, and luckily, one of those beds is a negative pressure room, which we didn't realize would come in as handy as it is. Uh, and what we see, you know, you know, as I'm sure everyone can appreciate, it, Queenstown has a real high propensity of trauma and orthopedic trauma in particular. Uh, and that's from all the adventure tourism that we get to experience here. But we've, from a, from a resourcing point of view, it's actually been it's quite low. And with our revamp last year of the emergency department, we, we got our first CT scanner, which has been invaluable. But we've grown really rapidly over the last 10 years that I've been there. Uh, when I started, we were seeing probably about 400 patients a month, and now we're at about 1,400 patients um, in our busy season per month. So, yeah, that's, that's a little bit about me and where I work. Yeah, thanks, Lou. And I guess you're, I guess, you know, outside of COVID, um, because of the socioeconomic impact and what happened, I, I imagine you've got a real change in your presentation numbers and types compared to before the borders 
were closed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've seen a we've seen a, a major drop of in our numbers, as have the GP practices. But in the same in the same space, you know, a lot of our population are seasonal workers or workers that work in hospitality and tourism, and so there's been a huge increase in welfare requirements. There's about 1,300 to 1,400 people per day who need food in Queenstown, and they're on the bones of their their bums, really. So I think we're going to see a real change in the demographic of what what kind of medicine we have been we've been used to seeing in Queenstown and that's going to be part of the adjustment that we're going to be moving through in the, in the forthcoming months. And I guess because um, Queenstown hasn't been faced with high levels of unemployment and that sort of thing lots of that infrastructure won't exist to support people like that. Yeah, yeah. But the council have been really proactive. And, you know, there are people with means in the community and they want to help. There have been a lot of um, expressions of help via the council. So, I mean, luckily, we, we live in a community where there are there are people with means and we can access that. And if we can't access it, we can go and ask. And so that's been one of the initiatives that have been happening on a, on a local level is to try and just beef up the resourcing um, that is community provided. Moving, I guess, more specifically onto COVID, what what has your experience been so far as a clinician? I mean, this broke, I think it was the weekend of um, the 15th of March, so we're about three weeks ago, was when we found out we had our first case in Queenstown. Uh, and so I suppose I can group my experience of COVID into three things, uh, 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 basically, as you've mentioned before, a planning and an in-service process and escalation plan structure. And the second is being involved on the periphery with um, care of inpatients. And um, the third is its impact on our staff. So as I'm sure has happened in all the rural hospitals, lots and lots and lots of planning. And for us, it was really real quite early on in the piece because we had our first inpatient and then a week later we had another inpatient and we subsequently have got a third inpatient on the ward at the minute. And so that was a real kickstart into our planning and how we were going to approach this and how we needed to sort of systematically move through that that planning process. The second the second thing is just peripheral care and seeing exactly how, how um, patients present. We've been really fortunate in that we've had pretty uncomplicated patients as inpatients, and it's actually been a, a good experience for the staff because they've realised that they're not as taxing and as scary as they initially thought they were going to be. Um, and it just was very useful in, in helping us plan what we would need and how we would have to work if we had to expect a large cluster of numbers. And the third thing, as I'm sure everyone's aware from the media, um, we have been in the media because two of our hospital staff became unwell with COVID. And so that um, impact on the rest of our staffing was massive. We've, we've lost 30% of our staff and we've had to rejig the rosters and uh, both nursing and doctor-wise to deal with that impact. And so it just makes you think about moving forward if you got an escalation in your numbers. There's probably going to be staff who become unwell with relative frequency and how you manage your staffing under those circumstances because that, that's going to be a really big challenge in the rural sector when you've, you've actually just got a really small pool to draw on.
Yeah, thanks, Lou. That's um, you know a really good overview of breaking it down into those those three parts. Um, I wondered if we could perhaps um, just maybe focus on a little bit more on your experience of looking after those three patients and protect, particularly around kind of the practicalities of having those patients on the ward and what the decision-making was around whether to hold on to those patients or um, transfer them. Sure. So the first, first patient that we had was really well there wasn't any particular um, medical indication for her being admitted, apart from the fact that we couldn't discharge her. She was um, an overseas tourist. Um, they were, I think they were living in a camper van, but she had a whole bunch of family with her um, who had not been exhibiting any symptoms. And basically, the reason why she was admitted into hospital was from a discharge planning point of view. Um, it was very hard to get her accommodation. It was very hard to transport her to that accommodation. And we'd, we'd begun to have smatterings of those problems in the week before with, with presumed well um, or suspected COVID patients that had, been, that had presented who'd been on, in big, big tour groups and um, it had been quite difficult to discharge them back to a hotel and transport them to that hotel if they didn't come in with their own transport. One lady we had was on a big tour group on a bus that was down in Milford Sound. So we'd begun to get a, a, a sense for the fact that that discharge planning process was was tricky, and we had to elevate that through our EOC up to the, the, the EEC to try and get that system and process formulated. So so for those of you um, in rural communities, uh, rural sectors, this is this is really tricky. Where do these patients go and how do they get there? And how do they safely get there? And do those hotels need to be informed? And all of those questions ca- came to the fore with that week, with that particular patient. Our second patient, he actually had an oxygen requirement. So he came in looking quite unwell initially. Um, he had a four litre per minute oxygen requirement. And I think he needed a bit of fluid resuscitation as well, even though we can, we appreciate that we like to run these patients quite dry. He just looked pretty unwell. And he had a very typical um, COVID x-ray that uh, was urgently re- hot reported from uh, Australia and they phoned us with the report. Uh, and he, I think, if my memory serves me correctly, had a low lymphocyte count, but the rest of his parameters, his troponin, his D-dimer, his LDH, were all within normal levels. Um, and he had a fairly uncomplicated course on the ward, but uh, we notified ICU early because obviously four litres of oxygen per minute is reasonable, and we weren't sure what his trajectory would be during the course of his hospital stay. And he, um, I have to think where he was in his illness. He might have been day seven, day seven, day no, he was day five. Sorry, so he still had room to deteriorate at the sort of day ten mark. And he was a Spanish gentleman who was here with his wife and so communication was tricky and they didn't have so that these were these were the things that we learned along the ways so there's a couple of things when you when when you're nursing someone that has been deemed stable and fit for a rural hospital to care for them um and and communication is massive but you also really want to limit your exposure and your nursing exposure so every time a medical staff go into their room, they're, they're put at risk. And if you have prolonged periods of time of exposure, that risk increases. So we were really mindful about that. And we tried to limit our um, exposures to three times a day. 
we, he was great in that he was really um, a motivated patient. So he learned how to do his own sets monitoring. He learned to do his own temperature. He learned to put put his um, oxygen on and off and how to tweak the flows. Um, you have to f- sort of face all the monitoring equipment and the oxygen because uh, we were using big G oxygen bottles. So they, the, the, the levels of the oxygen bottles had to be faced to the window so we could check that we had enough oxygen stores. Um, the nurses would then group all the tasks around mealtime so that they would go in once to empty his commode or his urinal, to um, deliver his food, to administer his meds. And then they'd check up on him um, via phone or a baby monitor. So it took a while to get the phone, but we used a baby monitor um, just so we could communicate with him. Um, And then obviously you have to do the daily phone calls to the family because they aren't able to come and visit him. So there's a whole lot of practical um, issues around caring for a COVID patient and at the same time balancing that with staff safety. So those were a lot of very practical tasks that we tried to tease out whilst he was there. And it was it was a really good opportunity to uh, really nut out how to nurse and provide medical care in an effective, safe way for your staff, but also um, in a safe way for them. Yeah, that, that's some really great practical tips. Where did you actually have him on in the hospital? So he, he initially spent the first night in the negative pressure room in our emergency department. And obviously, you know, that comes with its pros and cons. Pro, he was definitely in the right place. But con, it's a, it's a block to your the way that your emergency department functions. And so we are very much constrained by space and by oxygen in our little 10-bed ward. So we have... Um, we originally only have four oxygen beds on the ward and um, the location of those beds is slap bang in the middle of the busiest part of the ward where there's a lot of foot traffic and the rooms are very small. It's a very small area for a, a designated anti-area where you can doff your clothing on the way out. But the isolation trolley will take up approximately a third of that corridor, the width of the corridor. So you've got very limited space to safely don and doff um, and do the rest of your PPE procedure where there's a lot of foot traffic going and throughput going through that particular area. So we we decided um, to, we have two rooms. If you think of our ward as a, as a long rect- rectangle and within that rectangle, rectangle is a smaller rectangle where the utilities and the sluice and the bathrooms and the nursing station are. The corridor is um, just basically all around that first rectangle and there are two rooms on the opposite side of the ward at the end of the corridor that are a little bit larger so they can fit in two beds but they're also they can be cut off from the rest of the ward and we decided that that would be the the most appropriate locale, but it took a lot of toing and froing and experimenting and trying to get buy-in from the nursing staff. So what we did was we converted that into an isolation um, area with plastic drop sheets, which extend from the, the ceiling down to the ground and are attached onto the walls um, and are sealed with tape. And that is in keeping with what our technical advisory group um at um, SDHB has allowed 
And then we've created doors with big zips. So we created this area outside of those of, of those rooms for uh, nursing staff to don and doff. And it's a, it's a green area uh, because your donning and doffing actually happens, the majority of it happens within the room and there's space within the room. Um, but we can just um, completely coordinate off so that there's no risk of any other staff or cleaning staff or other patients walking through that area. Uh, and But we had no oxygen in those rooms, so we attached three large G-bottle oxygen cylinders to the wall and um, were able to dispense, did, did all the calculations, because the, G, the Gs, each G could provide 24 hours at 8 litres per minute. And um, But we wanted to have enough oxygen in there so that you could have a patient in there for a significant period of time without having to send in the maintenance um, man to, to exchange the bottles and then have to expose him to the risk and having to wear PPE. So we've, we've, we've got a lot of logistical, practical issues that are within the confines of our space and our locale that we've had to nut out. Subsequently, though, um, the DHB have decided to reticulate oxygen into um, all of the rooms on the ward and, um, and an, another section of the hospital as well. These small wins are important, don't they? You know, <laughs> I, I mean, I've worked at Queenstown Hospital and was reasonably shocked to discover that we had to go out somewhere out the back to find the oxygen bottles to get to the rooms that didn't have oxygen, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And un until you're in a pandemic where the only real treatment is oxygen, <laughs> you become, um, you, you're not you're sort of blindly aware of what where the oxygen bank is and the stores are. But now I'm fully aware, very aware of where every port is in that hospital and how to change the bank and who does it and what levels we have to do it at. So we'll talk through that a little bit later. Yeah, it sounds like you, you know, like every hospital in New Zealand, every small hospital will be faced with unique challenges. And um, it sounds like you guys have, you know, done lots of thinking um, and nutting this out and come up with pretty good innovative ideas to, to work with what you've got. I just wondered, Lou, if you wouldn't um, mind commenting just how, how you've been finding um, sort of that relationship with the larger hospitals and with the DHB as far as um, getting that advice and, and that sort of collaboration to make those decisions. So, I mean, I, th I think that's that's the challenging bit. Uh, I, th I think we felt up until that stage that we were on the periphery, not quite in the forefront of their minds with regards to planning. But I think with our, our two patients in quick succession and with the numbers reflecting that we had one of the highest um, numbers in the, in the DHB and, and percentage per capita we are by far the highest, um, that got their attention. So it made those conversations uh, slightly easier to have. And that's also in the background of all the hard work that's been done over the last 10 years with a consistent workforce and relationships that have been forged um, and this degree of trust in those relationships. So we were very fortunate to have that relationship first and then also to have um, two patients in quick succession who were the first patients within the DHB, which sort of gave us a slight advantage in trying to, um, you know, fight the fight for our turf. But it, it, it did require, um, you know, daily coordinated systematic communication and um, persistency and really chasing those people down to sort of be heard. I would say the biggest challenge that we've had in our locale has been um, 
the oxygen issue and ventilation. So what what we know and what was um, expressed to us by the technical advisory group is that positive pressure in any room is a definite no-no. And we, with our new refurb from last year, we, we had the luxury of positive pressure ventilation in most of the rooms in our ward. And I mean, I'm not an, a ventilation expert, neither is any of my colleagues, but we did think that it was quite strange that these plastic sheets were billowing out when we'd set them in. So getting someone to actually review the ventilation systems, find out what parts of the hospital are vented by what dampeners, as they call them. I mean, we, we also have the added complexity that we have Bupa co-located in our hospital. And that was a real, really big priority to us to keep the elderly safe and separate from what was going on in the, in the hospital. But we wanted assurance that the ventilation systems were not connected, which they're not. Um, and then afterwards, how do you deal with that ventilation issue? I mean, we've, we've had to, we've now converted those positive pressure rooms into neutral pressure rooms. And that's by shutting off the vents into each room and by inserting an extractor fan into the window of, of each particular room. So that there's a gentle exit of about 100 litres per minute of air outside of the window. And then we've had to establish big cordons outside of the window so as to protect anyone that might be able to walk past. So I would say the oxygen and the ventilation have been our two major challenges because we've had to rely on the DHB system to provide us with oversight from a building and maintenance point of view. And for us, it was really important that the right people were signing us off. They couldn't send us the information for us to have a think about whether it was okay or not. We want someone who's experienced in that field to sign us off. Um, so that was challenging, but it's now underway. Yeah, and I think it's, it, it highlights for me, Lou, that as these are things that as clinicians, well, I can speak for, for myself, I've never thought about before, you know, and, and things that we don't have any experience or really deep knowledge about, but but need to be vocal about and get the the expert help that we need. And I guess being peripheral, it is that persistence and communication, isn't it? Um, making sure we're heard. And I also, I think that's one of the factors of being rural is that, you know, uh, I think in your big tertiary centre, you're looking after your patch. If you're in the emergency department, you're sorting out your emergency department. The logistics, the trickiness, I think, in tertiary is how each patch coordinates with one another and there's going to be a bit of turf warfare in that respect. In rural, it, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to get a local solution if your team decides this is how you're going to do it uh, and you've got a cohesive team that work well together. It's quite easy to sort out what you think are your local solutions and to just go forth and do them. But where you where it's tricky is where you have to coordinate that with DHB and make them hear what you what you what you have found as being important and you need an answer to before you can progress forward to, to really make that that argument or that priority heard. And 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 you have to think of everything. You know, I never thought that I would know or find out where our oxygen bank is and how to change it and how to check the levels. And I've never ever thought about ventilation in the hospital at all. But now I'm very aware of it. <laughs>
just because of where we find ourselves. And it's all that other stuff that on in a, on a rural level you have to think about, which I don't, you know, you'd have building and maintenance in a tertiary hospital doing that for you. So these are the these are the um, the complexities that we faced. <laughs> the, yeah, oh, a multitude of things. Um, I guess, Yulu, that's a really good description of some of the changes you've had to make on the ward. And I was wondering if you could if you could speak to what changes you've had to make around your um, systems of triage and perhaps the setup of your emergency department. And I know this is not going to be directly applicable to every single rural hospital, but I just think it's it's communicating things that you've done to give people the opportunity to consider things within their own hospital and if, if those have been dealt to. So I think. You know, in the beginning, when when we came across this, we we, we thought that the priorities for us were staff, uh, staff safety, and PPE, and then a, f- a few other principles along the lines of always being flexible and always maintaining patient care and patient safety as a priority. And they're trying to factor those in those principles into how you work in your ED, whatever the design is of your ED, because all ED designs are different. So then you kind of extrapolate that out to the broad principles of red zones and green zones. And we've actually included um, an orange area because if there's one thing that our, our little hospital is um, quite good for is actually keeping those orange patients away from the red patients and the green patients because they are your high-risk patient. So it was about establishing where those areas were that we would um, see people. It was also very much um, focusing on how we would safely transport a red or an orange patient around the hospital without exposing any other people to risk. Um, It was about how the ambulance personnel approach our building. It was also about how and who screens. And um, and now it's also been about how we document that screening process. Uh, And then it's it, this, this, probably the fifth thing was like how, how we manage those patients. So if what were the indications for admission? Um, what was the indications for sending them home? What was the discharge advice for when they go home? Who follows them up? How do they get home? Where do they stay? Um, so that's kind of a loose sort of principle of those management strategies. So, I mean, I think from a process point of view, you know, red has to uh, remain separate, preferably in a negative pressure room, and then your your a preference if you don't have a negative pressure room to a neutral room with a closed door to a, a curtained area with the curtains closed and a mask on the patient. And we, we're very fortunate in that we have a lot of rooms. So we, we have two areas where we do the assessment, possibly a third, and then we can spill over into isolated rooms on the ward with a with a separate access point for anyone who we deem as red. I think the the green stream is still going. There's this there's a possibility that there's a degree of community spread in Queenstown at the moment. So we've we've had to change almost on a two to three daily nature the way that we approach the green stream. Um, and the other process that happened really soon after we had our first patient on the ward was that we had no visitors and actually having no visitors in ED apart from uh, a parent with a, with a child, a single parent with a child, has been really helpful in having us get control of the situation and with control comes you know, ease of handling, ease of handling the situation as a whole. I don't know if I've answered that question, um, Matilda, does that make sense or? 
No, no, I think that's really good. I think you've you've kind of um, introduced in like really important concepts. I think um, I was just wanting to clarify what's the setup with a is there a CBAC in Queenstown? Yes, we it, it took probably two weeks to set up the CBAC. We had a very very proactive GP practice who saw an opportunity and they set up uh, an initial CBAC type structure, but it but it was chargeable. So we they alerted us to the fact early on, and then we worked really hard to try and elevate that up to the powers that be that, you know, that they couldn't be charging $200 for an assessment. It would have to be free because that was a barrier to care. So that was approved and in the interim whilst the CBAC was being set up. And then the CBAC was only operational for a Monday to Friday, 9 to 5 point of view. So we could triage people away to the CBAC during that, and then it took probably a week for that to be um, Monday to Sunday. So that's been really, um, really useful to us um, and has kept a lot of patients away who could be managed in that setting. And I just want to clarify, um, Lou, with regard to differentiating your um, green from orange from red, um, from a triage point of view, have you taken guidance um, from from the DHB or have you established that um, amongst you as a group of clinicians? Yeah, no, the green and red is pretty standardised DHB stream. We kind of, we call our oranges um, the patient's that are on the ward, so when you start heading into secondary care type level, because it takes about 24 hours for our results to come back. So we would call you red on the ward if you're confirmed COVID, and we call you orange if you're on the ward if you're presumed COVID or or a respiratory illness with enough risk factors, well, reasonable pretest probability, um, wait awaiting um, a swab. I think it's important to have a chat about that cluster of patients because they are they are tricky. They're tricky for a few reasons. Nowadays, you know, you can have an exacerbation of COPD that could meet those criteria or an exacerbation of asthma. And, you know, I think every rural hospital is going to have their regulars that start coming in, in during the course of a winter season with their usual exacerbation. But they would actually tick that screen red when they present to ED. And it's all about how you manage those patients and protect them from turning red and keep them in uh, droplet isolation precautions until they're suitably investigated. But you know we've we've learned a lesson on the ward that those patients um, you can't drop your isolation precautions based on one negative test result. You can if your pretest probability is really low and there's a really suitable explanation um, explaining away their symptoms. But um, I think it's rural rural um, docs need to be mindful of the fact that they they probably need a second test and a discussion with public health or infection if infectious diseases before you drop your PPE uh, and isolation precautions on them. So we we've set up a little protocol for them because we learnt our lesson in the first week about um, a patient presenting in that way. So we've, so, so we, we've got our orange cohort, we've got our green stream on the ward, and we've got our red stream on the ward. But ED, the ED practice is standard green and red. Yeah, and I think that um, shared decision-making, you know, I'd certainly advocate for that um, when it's that, those really difficult decisions. Um, I was just wondering, Lou, have you preemptively sought clarification with Dunedin and Invercargill about your ceiling of care or threshold for transfer? 
Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Matilda. So this is an area that I think is still new and changing, and I think it's very dependent on where we as a DHB are from a regional coordinated care perspective. No one really wants to draw a line in the sand on those issues yet. We have a representative on the clinical advisory group and um, we've formed really good relationships with the infectious diseases and respiratory physicians who are on that group and they've been in communicate they've been in communication with us a lot and um, we're in we're included in all the email correspondence um, and they will phone us if something changes. And so for now, we just have a standardized, from a ceiling of care point of view um, or from an ICU admission point of view, there's just a standardized admission protocol and there's a bit of emphasis on functional status uh, and those questions need to be completed uh, succinctly and we We'll obviously do a, a ceiling of care assessment anyway on all patients that are going to be coming in. Uh, I think anyone who has an oxygen requirement of four litres per minute and above, we will discuss early with ICU so that they are aware uh, and then they can make a decision about an early transfer to a base hospital uh, in that setting. If if that is a patient that they'd escalate therapy on. Yeah, it's that, that sort, of, sort of thing that, um, yeah, definitely early conversations are better, aren't they? And mm. um, having a plan and that emphasis on functional status and getting a grip on that as soon as you, you um, are evaluating the patient. Um, Lou, I was just wondering if we could take a bit of a change of tack. I guess um, you've, as a hospital, because you've had experience of actually looking after patients and being impacted by having staff who are infected, as you mentioned to me before we started recording, you know, levels of anxiety have naturally been running high. And I'm very wary of, of staff wellbeing. Um, and I just wonder if you just want to comment on that and just talk about perhaps some of the things you have done as a group to try and mitigate that anxiety. Mm. Yeah, that, that we thought as a team, as the working group in our hospital was exceptionally important. And we thought that we could alleviate that anxiety in a few ways. One was to be completely inclusive um, in formulating our team and how we communicate with our team. So um, everybody uh, was included in the communication. There was a couple of a couple of strategies that we decided. We decided PPE and education around PPE was essential for everybody. Uh, everyone who had come into contact with a situation where they could be exposed, and that was cleaning staff, laboratory staff, um, the radiographers, nurses, doctors. And the second thing was communication and how we were going to communicate with everyone. And the third thing was uh, early on in the piece, we've nominated one of our rural SMOs um, in, into a welfare role. And we've we've put a bit of focus into those three areas. So um, when it all broke, we had a big staff meeting. We, we expressed to everyone that we wanted everybody to get um, PPE training and we repurposed our nurse educator into an infection control role, and she's been phenomenal um, in her dedication and her evidence-based approach and her commitment to training up everyone and being open and available 
for very long hours, including weekends, to try and train staff up. And, and with that process, I think you you gave the staff a degree of control, you know, and as they got more comfortable with PPE and in the in conjunction with working with um, our patients, I think that just settled this, it just settled everybody down to think, well, you know, this is it's scary, but it's not that bad, and we've got a lot of control around how we can manage safely and and together as a team, and not only on an individual level, really stressing the safety of the bubble because everybody's bubble impacts on your healthcare worker bubble. So um, having an approach for your ambulance staff and making sure that they approach safely, um, having self-decontamination uh, guidelines when you're walking out of the building, what to do with your clothes, how to wash your clothes, wipe down your phone, wipe down your swipe card. Um, so that, that was one aspect of it. The second aspect was the communication bit. So we 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 spoke to everybody and we were like, we want to communicate with all of you. We have a group text that goes out um, every day um, and it will have three, because the communication has to be balanced with information bombardment. There's so much stuff out there. Your, your inboxes are full every day. You have a look at them. Everybody's trying to be helpful and send you lots of information, but it's about getting clear, concise, useful information that's useful either in a clinical realm or in an operational realm or, realm or in a personal safety realm. So we we use personal emails for information or guidelines or pathways that we think are essential for you to know about and we all operational type stuff or logistical type stuff. So we use that with care and we have and everyone's very happy for us to use it if those are the priorities around how you use that communication system. We have a daily text and then we have a weekly Zoom meeting for all staff that includes cleaning staff and reception staff. Um, the reception staff, uh, the cleaning staff, the allied health professionals, um, the midwives, the district nurses, they're all included in that daily text. They're all included in our emails. We wanted everybody to feel part of the team, we wanted there to be um, safety within that team, and we really stress that if all of you have a responsibility for yourself, and if you are nervous about a situation or you've got concerns about a situation, just escalate it up. You don't have to do it; just escalate it up. Um, and another part of the welfare was that we we also identified really early on in the piece who our vulnerable staff were, or who had staff uh, that had vulnerable. Um, parties in their household at home that they were worried about and we have a list of those and they are in our green stream um, and there's no questions asked that was just that was that was a um, a no-brainer um, and then the third thing was is welfare so one of our SMOs is um, in charge of welfare we have a COVID-free space in our hospital we actually have a beautiful end lounge which looks out onto coronet peak and we use it for our patients and their visitors but unfortunately now that visitors aren't allowed it's a it's a lovely quiet space with a nice view where our staff can go to de-stress there's no COVID information in there you know a lot of mentioned the c word in that room so that's a space on the hospital premises for welfare we are trying to get some funding for a psychologist who is in town to do some sessions with us as a group just on on um, 
she works with group dynamics and group interactions, and she's offered her services to us. So we feel that that will be really beneficial. Um, we try and do things like a quarantini on a Friday afternoon where we get together and have some drinks via Zoom. Um, and with the staff that's been laid or, or put into self-isolation after the exposures, our SMO phones them every couple of days just to see how they're doing to touch base, just to let them know that we've, you know, they're not alone. We think of them um, and we care. And even though this is a very stressful and anxious time, um, I, I feel like those measures do feel that there's definitely a team and a bonding feel within our hospital. And it's just about being kind, you know, walking down the passageway and asking um, Derek Aklina how he's doing. And, and, and I think the feedback that we're getting is that they really appreciate that and they feel part of the process and they feel informed. So there will be some information that's not a you know, applicable to them, but they they feel like they're included, and I I think it's important to to make your your team feel that we're all in it together because that's what we've got. We've we've only got one another in 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 the fight against this thing. If it does become what hopefully we hope that it won't become. That was awesome, Lou. That was um, you know, that gave me some such some really good ideas. It sounds like you kind of. Uh, have worked really hard on this and put in place some really effective strategies. I think the things I had written down while you were talking, inclusivity, you know, you seem to have taken some steps to really make everyone feel included. And I guess that that really clear communication pathways um, and some key leaders. So I guess that, that that makes people feel more safe and secure if they feel that people are, um, are taking a lead and providing guidance. Yeah, I will touch on that, Matilda. I think the clear communication pathways is absolutely essential. I think it's a, you know this is a, a a really interesting time, and 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 people have a lot of time on their hands now because they're in lockdown, and also the numbers are are a bit down. So there's a lot of people keen to help, and they and they they they're really keen to be involved. I think there are pros to that um, if it's directed. Um, and tossed well, but I think there are also cons to there being communication breakdown and the wrong messaging happening within your group. So we've been we really really reiterate the communication pathways. If there's a PPE or an infection control issue, please don't talk amongst yourselves. Please direct all of those to the infection control nurse. Then you'll get a single consistent message about those those things that you're talking about. If um, you've got an issue with the cleaning process, please don't go phone the cleaning manager in Dunedin about that particular thing. Feed it back to the operations manager and she can take that uh, further. Because the people on the other side receiving those calls are also being bombarded incessantly every day, all day. It's different, I think, getting a message from someone that they've never heard from before rather than someone that they've established a relationship with through this process because it just puts it into context and it and it, and it will prioritize that, if you will. And I think all those little side conversations are probably needed. I think people need to have space to be heard, but I think it, it needs to be managed in a way that it is moving towards a, a single uh, unified response. I mean, this is these these new and changing times, and I think that f- these the f- 
you, you need to have a degree of flexibility in what's happening. And I think flexibility is tough for some people. It's easier for some people and it's really difficult for some people. And so how you manage that, it might just be, uh, you know, you might think that giving people a lot of information empowers them. But I think when there are heightened levels of stress around, uh, there need to be forums where people can be heard in a, in a psychologically safe environment and just allowed to talk through their anxieties and have them um, heard. Um, and then I, f- I feel like issues can be addressed slowly and at their own pace as you move through this. I think it really does. And I, I mean, I certainly was aware of that in the first first week. You know, there were a lot of changing things coming from, from our base hospital and that did seem to make people more anxious. But I guess it's recognition that this is something completely completely new and that's that's part of it has to be a flexible dynamic system so that we actually do things properly Mm. Um, and I love the idea of your COVID free zone within the hospital and we'll try and um, sell that idea to to our team as well we've we've had a COVID free day within our home and it's certainly benefited everyone's state of mind oh totally I cannot agree more (laughs) the three and the six-year-old were very pleased not to hear the word for the day yeah yeah I, I did just want to touch a little bit on on the relationship and the work that you've done with the um, smaller hospitals in your region. So you you know you guys aren't just working in, in isolation. You've got Dunstan and Gore and Oamaru and Belclutha, and I just wondered if you could comment on that. I mean, as as people are probably well aware, Jen Keys, who is the chair of um, the rural division, is situated in our hospital and so she's been um, really well connected to all the rurals for a while now and when we um, had our first patients there was um, strong messaging coming from all the rurals of needing a little bit of support and guidance and Jen was obviously providing that but had to stay on site and and offered that I drove around and had a wee look at areas that people thought that they might need a little bit of support with or just a soundboard whether they'd thought through their processes right and I mean I'll put out a qualifier there I'm, I cannot consider myself uh, in any way shape or form experienced in this field but it was a great um, learning opportunity for me and it was a great opportunity to see how other people had worked through certain areas that um, that were their strengths and then we could talk through areas that they thought were were there weaknesses, weaknesses, whereas, you know, maybe for us it was a, we thought we'd got our head around it and another hospital thought they got their head around it. So so I, ha- I have been to Balclutha and Dunstan and Omaru and I've managed to walk through their systems and their processes um, and their accommodation and, and talk through and troubleshoot issues with kit and just mainly, f- I think that the main issues that I think people we were struggling to get the um, just to nut out was where to put red streams and green streams and how to transport them through the hospital safely. And I think that's where it's important that as a team you write down a list of pr- principles. That's where we started off. You know what's what is important to you as a team and as a group, and how do you want to how do you want to work what you've got with what work your space and work your team with with what you've got. And so that's different for each and every place, but I think there are some common principles that flow through every location. And that's having a system for identifying your red and your green stream. And that was something that I thought um, Dunstan Hospital did brilliantly. They had a a lady that used to work in there as an ambulance driver or 
um, of Wally Driver, and she was manning the door. Um, she would make sure that your hand hygiene was great. She'd keep a visitor's log, um, which would be perfect for contact tracing. Uh, you had to identify yourself and have a cell phone number. She would talk you through a bit of social distancing when you walk through the hospital, and then um, she'd do your screening, and then you were allowed to enter the building. And so I took that back to Queenstown because I thought that was that was phenomenal. So how you access the building and the control around accessing it, and then your screening process and who does it. And I think repeated screening, there is safety in repeated screening. So if you get screened again at reception and you get screened again by your triage nurse, and by the time you get to the doctor, patients start to think about, oh, have I had a sore throat or have I had a, a bit of a, a fever? They might be in for something completely unrelated. Or did I go traveling or was it actually two weeks ago or was it actually a week ago? So I think it's important to have a repeated screening process and then where you you put your, your patients and then how they, how they move through your hospital building. And then after that, it's the processes that happen once they're in secondary care uh, and then your thresholds in your various sector, uh, various centres of accessing external help either for a decision on ICU or ceilings of care, that type of thing. So yeah, it's it's been great. And not only, and through that process, you establish relationships and 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 the knock-on effect from that is that you as a group are represented in the DHB and there's a lot more power as a group to be heard and have your concerns heard together rather than um, as individuals. And I think from the DHB perspective, it if you can nominate a representative to represent you in the DHB, it's probably way easier for them on a communication level because they, they're having to do so much stuff as well. Yeah, I think that's that's really cool, and that's like another one of those positives to come from from this experience. Probably is um, a bit more collaboration and having knowledge of each other's environments, and all, also the the fact you're going to have reticulated oxygen on the ward. I'm still <laughs> I'm still celebrating that success for you, um, Lou. That this has been amazing. I mean, it's it's fascinating listening to your experience thus far, um, and I, I mean I've learned a lot. Is there anything else you feel sort of burning inside you that you'd like to, to communicate to other clinicians out there? I think um, keep it really simple. Keep it simple. I'd say in the rurals, get together with your team and set up a list of principles that you think are invaluable to the way that you want to move through this um, pandemic process. I think when you're trying to structure or, or get, a, get a sense in your head of how to deal with the vol, you know, the big volume that is a pandemic plan, break down into four things. One being your accommodation, so how are you going to work out your your location, uh, with particular attention to oxygen and ventilation. Uh, break it down to staff. So the second thing is staff. You know, how can you maximize your staff? Can you repurpose your allied health um, staff? So our physios, for example, we've taught them how to plaster. We've taught them how to suture. We might make, you know, we will make use of them um, in, in the emergency department if we're overrun in the ward. We have occupational therapists that are going to be working in reception that will be doing contact tracing. So staff... Um, think about your staff, think about how you can use your staff, engage your um, community GPs. Can you try and keep healthy patients out of your hospital or 
or green stream patients out of the hospital? Can there be hospital in the home? Can they palliate in the home? Can you beef up your district nurses um, group to try and treat patients um, at home? Can you change your antibiotic schedules, for example, keftriaxone for our patient pneumonias and gentamicin or keftriaxone for your pyelonephritis? Look after your staff. Look after your staff. Make welfare a really big priority because this is super stressful for everyone. So the third thing that I talk about is kit. Like go through your whole hospital, go through your basement to find out if you've got extra mattresses, how many beds you have. You know, do you have an iStat machine that you can make a red iStat for that pot, that DKA patient that comes in? Do you have a red iPhone that you can use for that critical patient that you're going to be in the red area for, and you want, you need to FaceTime critical care? Do you have a red iPad for your red palliative patient who is not going to be able to have their family around them, but they want to have daily conversations with their loved one or see their loved one? So think about things that you might need in the red areas and trying to have an inventory of what you've got. And then the fourth thing that I'd say is process, 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 process. You know, how are you going to screen? Are your reception staff trained with screening? How are your ambulance going to end into the building? How are you going to transfer your patients through the building? What are you, how are you going to make your medical staff know that this patient is COVID positive? How are you going to manage those lymphopenic febrile illness patients, the orange patients, if they test negative, but your pre-test probability is high? Um, What are your flow pathways for the well and the unwell patient? Uh, What is your room order preference? You know, which is your better room to have them in? And then if that room is full, what do you do then? Or if you're in recess and your negative pressure room is full, what's your second area that you might have to do a resuscitation in? Just I think process, 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 and systems, systems, systems. That's that's the fourth thing that I think you can need some time on. And we've built up a, a, a base, and um, we're very happy to share, and there's been a lot of stuff of ours that's been shared, and we're very happy to get some feedback because we're all very new and in this process, and we're learning. Um, but I think... Uh, the you know us as a rural group let's let's band together and put our brains together and help each other out so i really enjoyed your your podcast with jared green and marcus i thought they were they were great matilda i think you and rory are doing a fantastic job and it's all about dissemination of information but also robust communication with one another and 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 sticking to the structures to communicate because you don't want to have all these little side conversations. We should we should um, we should be one voice to our DHBs and a powerful voice. <laughs> it's a great message, Lou. And I think that what what you have done for me is because I think it, it I think people overwhelming is you know one of the you frequently use descriptive words of, of trying to think of how to deal with all of this um, and all, all its variations and I think you breaking it down into a bit of a structure is really important and I guess one of the things we need to be wary of is that we, we may move into a, a new different phase soon where we we do have lo- mm. lower case numbers but mm. it's still going to be out there and we're still going to need to manage this, this uncertainty so that will pose a, a whole lot of new challenges for us. Lou, I, I can't thank you enough, um, and particularly as you're on nights, and you've been sounds like you've been working so hard, you and your team. So thanks for all your 
contribution tonight, but also thank you to you and your Queenstown team for all the work that you've done with your planning and the care of these patients and all the other patients. Um, it would be great to share some of your resources and that's something we could think about doing through um, leaning on fence posts. No problem. Sounds good. So that brings um, our podcast to a close. So again, thank you so much, Lou. Uh, and also thank you to all of you out there who are caring for your bubbles and your colleagues and your patients. We appreciate any feedback and questions. Kia kaha, ka kite anō.